Hi, uh, Helen and I here to make a quick announcement. It's kind of embarrassing. Well, for, for a long time, we were just like debating whether to do it or not, right? How long has it been? Mm-hmm. How, how long have we been doing the podcast? Uh, 18 months. 18 months. I think. And we're yeah, on... since March 2019. We're going on 40 episodes? 45? 45. Yeah. So uh, maybe... You know, maybe depending on who you ask, we paid our dues or maybe not. But uh, we thought we would open a Patreon. And um, if you've been listening to the podcast and you've liked it, well, maybe think about supporting us. We're going to put the link in the description. And um, yeah, I don't know. What do, what, do you, what do you have to say about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things that we're like, ooh, because I, I mean, we're... We live in a market system and one has to survive and everything. And I know that we're like super um, ad hoc about it, which is kind of great and it's kind of work. But we've always kind of thought like, right, we're going to record every week or we're going to get more guests on or we're going to have somebody else edit so that we can focus more on having conversations. Um, And obviously, uh, yeah, it takes time. Each episode takes a few hours and then hosting software and uploading and da, 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 editing software so we have kind of thought that you know i think on patreon you put different like levels and obviously we don't really aspire to, to make anything at all but you know a little bit of um support would mean that we could pay for the soundcloud account for the editing software and maybe even get to the point of being more consistent if you enjoy the podcast, potentially we could get to it once per week if yeah. you have time. Um, so yeah, yeah, and also getting better, get better guests because um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's something that we've been trying to do more, getting more more guests on the show. But but yeah, we'll put the link on the description if you're interested. Um, check it out, and you can support us if you want. There's different tiers there, and uh, not a lot of uh, perks. But <laughs> well, our perks we're going to say like you can watch some of our work. Like I'll yeah. send links to some films that I've made, and Adrian, you're going to link to an album, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, everybody gets the same perk because you know we do don't believe we're universalists. Exactly, we should all be given the same amount, regardless of city. Each according to his whatever teach according to his need. I can't remember. How it goes. <laughs> But, yeah. you know. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, if, if, if things if, if things are going well, uh, we might do like a couple episodes a week and, and do one, uh, like, mm-hmm. a, like a private feed. So, yeah, yeah um, that's all. And uh, here's the episode we did with uh, Ben Burgess. Thanks so much. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Estranged. We're super excited to have another guest on today. We are talking to Ben Burgess. Uh, Ben is the author of a number of books, most recently Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, with zero books. Um, You contributed to, is it Madness and Mayhem, Mayhem and Madness? Uh, uh, myth uh, myth myth. Myth, Myth and Madness. Mayhem probably says something about me interpreting uh, yeah, yeah. John Peterson, um, which looks at the work of John Peterson. Yeah. And then most recently, your book coming out, also with Zero Books, mm-hmm. is, um, you'll have to remind me of the, of the wording. Uh, um, Canceling Comedians, Comedians World War, as a critique of the contemporary left, yeah. Well, I think that's like a perfect 
sort of like summary of a lot of the issues we face right now. Um, a lot of kind of distraction mechanisms going on. Uh, a lot of, and we were just talking about this before we, we pressed record, a lot of sort of um, riding on the coattails of originally quite um, well-motivated and potentially left-wing concepts and using those to really now stifle the kind of key issues at hand that are really the issues of the left. Um, we were going to talk today in particular about the Dave Chappelle special from last year, Sticks and Stones, yeah. um, which I really enjoyed watching again yesterday. Um, so it's do you funny want to talk that, us to trust a little bit? Just quickly, it's funny that we're going to do that one because I think today a new stand-up special came out from Chappelle. So that oh, would have really? been, been yeah that would have yeah, been, been good too. To, to, oh, to wow. do that one, okay. do that one instead, yeah. Uh, well, I haven't I haven't watched or listened to that yet, but uh, but I am looking forward to it. I I think that honestly, I, I think that everything that he's done in in the last couple of years um, has you know has has been very good, right? I, th I think that there's been like a lot of discourse about like how he's declined, but I think that's I think that says more about the way that maybe some viewers or listeners have changed than the way that his shtick has changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the things that sort of, I think things that um, are really ideological questions um, about things that suddenly become unacceptable to you. I mean, it's, it's different. It's difficult to, uh, to distinguish between like what you actually like and what you dislike and what is something that is sort of like the, uh, the contemporary cope of whatever egregious material conditions exist you know is affecting what you see i mean we talk a little bit about like the concept of gaze um you know what is actually what you actually see and what is actually like your field of vision determined by ideological kind of lenses through which you see the world um but do you want to talk to us a little bit about why you were motivated to write um this most recent book yeah so uh the book that's uh canceling comedians while the world burns um which the title is taken from the subject of the first chapter, and it's also used for the title since, you know, it's vivid and it alliterates. But uh, it's the larger subject of the book is the way that, um, in my view, uh, you know, the left, with which I obviously strongly identify, uh, has gotten into a lot of bad habits over the course of the last several decades, uh, where in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., even um, you know, social Democrats like like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn uh, have spent the vast majority of their careers like way out on the fringes uh, of mainstream politics, and anything more radical than that just seemed uh, utterly impossible. Um, really, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher, you know, Tina, there is no alternative. Uh, and in that era, I think uh, it got very easy to start thinking of uh, the of left politics just purely as taking a kind of moral stand against all of the horrible stuff that's going on. So like, I love Noam Chomsky, but if you read Chomsky, there's never a point where he stops to consider, okay, well, what if a socialist government took power in the United States, then how would it handle, you know, this foreign policy thing, whatever, because that, that just wouldn't be a question that would even arise because he's writing at a time when that would have just seemed um, completely impossible. Uh, and, I think that's understandable, but my worry is that a lot of the bad habits that kind of come out of that, that are, I think, both a symptom of that long exile from real world power and a contributing factor to its continuation, 
uh, are really undermining us now that things have finally started to change a little bit. Uh, and so the larger subject is that kind of counterproductive left moralism uh, and one part of it, right? You know, the, the part that's, that's in the, you know, that's the, the hook in the opening chapter and, that's, and that the title is drawn from uh, has to do with the way that a lot of, uh, certainly in the United States, a lot of leftists and progressives have this very weird way of, of really moralizing and, and treating as if it were very politically weighty um, what people say in stand-up comedy specials, uh, which, uh, which, which the more you think about it, the stranger that is, right? But I, yeah. I, I think yeah, that, yeah. that what, I, what I argue in that chapter is that the, the kind of, there are kind of two halves of this, uh, that one side of the coin, the one that's more relevant, I guess, what we're going to be talking about today with sticks and stones is like critiquing uh, the the premise of some riff in a stand-up special as if it were an essay that were published in Jacobin. Uh, <laughs> and then the other half uh, is... Well, the other half, I think, is, is best seen by stuff like how excited uh, liberals got uh, about uh, the John Oliver Drumpf thing from, uh, from 2016, or like about four years before that, uh, the um, the march that he and John Stewart did in Washington, the rally to restore sanity, where you literally had thousands of people who were going to Washington D.C. not to uh, not for an anti-war protest or anything like that, uh, but because their favorite news comedians told them to, uh, and and there's there's something very strange about that, and I, I think both cases. There's, there's a kind of confusion about what comedy is and um, and what it's for, uh, and and I think that I think that the the underlying thing has to do with this this habit of seeing politics as a kind of moral performance, uh, mm -hmm. and and thinking that maybe just the pure force of your indignation with the injustices of the world will somehow correct those injustices, and there's a sort of um, heartbreakingly earnest version of this fantasy, which you get from like uh, the West Wing, you know, if, if you've watched that, <laughs> uh, where, where President Bartlett will just literally reduce the Republicans to shamed silence by the power of his eloquence. Uh, and then there's the version of it, uh, there's the comedy version of it, right, which sees mm -hmm. the old comedian as, as the kind of, you know, court jester who can tell the king that the peasants are starving. Uh, with, but, you know, the problem with that, of course, is that, uh, you know, the, the king already knows peasants, peasants are starving. If he cared, you know, he wouldn't get to be the king in the first place. Uh, you're much better off just organizing the peasants themselves into a movement for land reform. Uh, but I think that, I think that as far as, as the specific subject of its effects on comedy, uh, I, I think that you, you tend to get something really bad. And I actually think that this special we're going to be talking about today is an honorable exception to this. But when, when comedians do touch on these subjects, it tends to go really wrong in one or two ways. And I guess that's the last thing I'll say, right? Which is just that uh, either you get um, this, this kind of cloying, you know, performatively woke comedy that is sort of, that's, that's catering to, to this reaction and seems, you know, to be more designed to elicit um, what's sometimes called clapter than laughter. 
uh, you know, that you're, you're yeah. not really, you know, like there, I'm sure you can think of comedians whose bits seem to be designed not so much to inspire people to laugh or to think, right, you know, but as too much as to inspire them to yas queen, right? That's, yeah. you know, yeah. So that's one way that it goes very wrong. And then the other way mm -hmm. that it goes very wrong is that, uh, is that it creates an opening for just like the laziest possible uh, anti-woke comedy. Um, yeah. Which, which, which we're pretty much drowning in now because the same way that I think, in the same way that in like 2005 maybe, uh, the, the sort of go-to thing for a lot of comedians was doing this sort of George Carlin-esque anti-religious thing you mm -hmm. know, during, during the new atheism era. Uh, the same way now I think that, uh, oh my God, why can't anybody tell a joke anymore is, 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 the, is the lazy go-to. Uh, for, for a lot of comedy comedians and because there's an audience that appreciates that it kind of disguises stuff that's that's not particularly good right because because it you know because they'll really they're getting their version of Yas Queen you know for like telling yeah. off the PC mob or whatever and, and either way it's it's not going to produce particularly thought-provoking or or particularly funny material do you think I, mean, I think that analogy with no, just just really quick. Um, do do you think that uh, stand up comedy is even an art form that is that within its possibilities is uh, subverting the norm, or is it really something? A lot of comedians say that you know comedy is dead and it's not something that can come back. Some of them say that it's because of like the censorship. You can't say a lot of things that used to be considered funny, but mostly just like as a form. Do you think that it's something? politically viable because you have all these different types of comedy now that are that are different than stand-up comedy like uh podcasting um i'm thinking of like come town which is like extremely sort of like on pc and at some point they were making like fifty thousand dollars a month um yeah it's crazy do you think that that like stand-up comedy is something that can still even have like swaying power when it comes to like the social political sphere well I mean, this kind of gets down to what it's for, because I think that when you talk about swaying power, you know, like the idea that somebody is going to be convinced that their ideas are wrong and that they should think something else instead, or in like the really like black and white versions of this, that they should, I don't know, like vote the other way or something like that, right? Like, I think that that strikes me as, as a job that stand-up comedy is, is very poorly equipped to do and, and always has been. Right, that I, I I don't think it really, I don't think it really does that, or at least not enough, you know, to to invest a lot of a lot of hope in it. Uh, I think that at its best, you know, I mean, at its best, it it is an an art form, right? Which which is to say, uh, roughly, right? You know, that like, I mean, the distinction between entertainment and art is is fuzzy, obviously, but like, you know, but that something. I guess I roughly think of that as a form of entertainment that doesn't just entertain, right? You know, but also has some kind of depth to it. You know, uh, makes uh, makes you think about things in a slightly different way. Has uh, all of that stuff, right? Like, you know, has some sort of insight that's attached to it. And I think at its best, it can do that. But I think that it's not so much a matter of. Uh, I think I think what I think good art um, that's 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 political. If we're not just talking about um, I mean, I think there's a kind of good art that's political, that's that's preaching to the choir political, right? You know, making like folk songs for protests and things like that. 
Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? I think comedy is very bad for that role, right? But I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But otherwise, I think what, what political art can do is not so much change people's minds as just kind of make them um, see things at a little bit of a right angle that, that, that mm -hmm. might make them that might make them think differently, but it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not an essay, right? There's no, uh, th there's no, there's no thesis that's being argued for, or if there is, it's probably terrible comedy. Absolutely. I mean, I, I kind of think that the role of art is to not reduce um, contradiction to opposition, but rather to bring contradiction to the foreground. And I think, you know, talking about, I really like your analogy with Christianity and atheism and essentially, you know, that's, you know, with the woke and anti-woke and essentially the truth lies elsewhere as in like, why do we believe what we believe, what material conditions are leading people to believe one thing or the other or what truth is spoken by this belief. And I also kind of, um, talking about this idea of morality, I'd never really thought about, you know, the, um, the left being in exile for so long and that kind of turn to morality because it essentially like appeals to morality are important when there is no alternative but some like horrible Reaganite Thatcherite ex like obviously exploitative system but of course you know we have um bootstrapping is a is, is a phenomenon within capitalism and of course morality bootstrapping can be another form and uh, what a great way to, to distract from material conditions when you focus on morality over materialism. Um, yeah, so I mean, but I, I really just, I really think this idea of um, pointing to contradiction rather than overcoming it with, you know, opposition, goodies and baddies is what art is for. And I think this is what the Dave Chappelle special does. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that maybe gets to in what Adrian was talking about earlier, the, the kind of germ of truth in the extremely overblown complaints about how, oh, you can't say anything anymore, you can't make a joke, mm -hmm. whatever, right? Uh, that obviously on some level that's clearly false, right? If, if you if you listen to, to, to lots of stand-up, right? You know, you'll, you'll find tons of people who are coasting off of easy laughs from like, you know, from, from, from just, just being as offensive as possible, right? There's lots of that stuff out there, right? But I think that the germ of truth in it is that it reduces the space to play with ambiguity. That, mm -hmm. uh, that I, I, think that, I think a lot of times comedy is at its best uh, when, um, when you're just living with the contradiction, right? That, you know, that, you're, that you're, not, uh, you're not trying to like really push very hard in a particular direction, you're just kind of, milking humor out of the like absurdity of of some tension you know with with yeah. it right you know, and uh and so i think that the i think that the germ of truth in the self-censorship complaint is that there is then a lot of pressure just sort of to yeah reduce contradiction to opposition to just to just pick a side and uh and 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 either like aggressively cater to one audience or another mm -hmm. uh rather than um you know, playing with an audience's discomfort and, 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 and finding and finding the humor like within the points of opposition. And I think this is the thing with um, this reducing, I, I was, you know, this is what I think is happening on, on the woke, woke side to some extent, and it's potentially not surprising that A, both Harry Potter is used as an artistic analogy for all kinds of political things, and also why um, J.K. Rowling, who potentially... 
I don't want to, you know, death of the author or that, like, say what's in her mind, but, you know, there is a sort of, like, morality play in this versus that and women versus trans, you know, that she has become caught up in a... Because in a, in a, I think it's the same mode of thinking, but, you know, in a different direction. But um, that... So this this opposition created out of contradiction and good versus bad. Then this is, I think, you know, the element of truth where the anti-wit comes in, where... To, you know, I think to many people's mind, this reduction of good versus bad, this group is good, this group is inherently bad, there's an essentialism here, this group does this, this group is essentially that. That that is, to my mind, racist, in that it is essentializing uh, rather than, um, and, not, and it's almost orientalist in the sense that this group cannot be made fun of because they're particularly fragile or they're particularly angelic. Whereas, again, in Sticks and Stones, Dave Chappelle you know, shows that actually to be human is to be able to be bad and to be able to be immoral. And that's the whole kind of messiness of life. And we all as humans have the right to be human. And I think, you know, the, the bit where he's talking about the alphabet people is, you know, an example of this is, it's uh, f funny, it's uh, making light of something, of some, of everything has an absurd element. And everybody gets to be not just some fr fragile, frozen, angel marble statue that is devoid of any human characteristics. Yeah, I mean, really, like, I think one of the funny things about this album is that he starts out um, by doing some things that, like, especially rewatching it, I thought were, like, really obviously meant to signal, like, what's coming and what light you should see it in. Uh, but seems like a lot of people like i don't know like 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 uh like it seemed like he was really kind of spelling it out almost but um uh but but nonetheless right i mean like reading any of the reviews of it never mind any of the tweets about it and, and you'll see that lots of people did not at all see it in the light that he was going out of his way to say look here's what i'm up to and what follows right like so how does he start out he starts out talking about uh anthony bourdain and uh and and his his friend uh, with, you know, with the messed up life. And, you know, and, and so it's, that's that exact thing that you were just saying, right. You know, that, uh, that, you know, you're, you're allowed to be broken. You can get through it. Right. You know, that, uh, that, yeah. I mean, the, Hey, this guy never thought about killing himself, you know, for, uh, for yeah. a second, which is both funny and also, you know, really, really highlights, you know, what's about to come. And then the second thing that he does is he, he says, Oh, I never do impressions, but I'm going to do two impressions. Uh, and oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. the first, <laughs> you know, they're not going to be very good. I'm going to do <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the first one is the founding fathers of the United States of America. Uh, and it's, you know, hurry up and finish writing that constitution and word. Right. And, uh, and then uh, the second one is the, of his impression, you know, which is very drawn out and, you know, very funny and he does it very well. Right. But like his impression of like the audience getting mad about the jokes and it seems like a lot of people kind of okay they, they honed in on the second part but they completely missed the point of okay why is there the first part there right why does he start out with the founding fathers before he does the joke about the overly sensitive audience and it seems pretty clear that what he's doing is is like the first joke right is is reminding people hey I'm still Dave Chappelle. Remember, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who did the joke, who did the show where, um, where there were all the jokes about, you know, Bush lying about weapons of mass destruction and reparations and, you know, like all that stuff. Right. Like 
I'm coming at you from this, yeah, very irreverent, but like basically progressive worldview. Uh, and you people are ridiculous, right? You know, like, and, uh, and, and it really seems like, and that especially when you get to stuff like that alphabet people joke later, you know, about the L's and the G's and the B's and the T's, uh, and the Q's, sorry. Uh, the, uh, he, uh, uh, he even says, right? Like, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, like, it's so weird, you know, that like so many people manage to hear that as, oh, here's Dave Chappelle saying that like, you know, he doesn't like, you know, gay and trans people, you know, but it's like, well, hold on in the bit, right? He talks about how uh, the, you know, how the, the, the journey, right, that the car is on is, uh, as, you know, is, is escaping from oppression and discrimination. Um, I mean, do you think Dave Chappelle thinks oppression and discrimination are good things? You know, like, like that was yeah. really off brand, you know, I mean, yeah. like the, the, the point, you know, the point of it, uh, it, you know, I mean, that he's, you know, I mean, he's playfully exploring what he sees as the like tension points within this. Uh, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it's from, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's from a, a position of, of, of being, you know, of, of being basically sympathetic, you know, of, of saying that, yeah, of course, right. You know, this is a, this is civil rights struggle. Civil rights struggles are good things. But he's also highlighting the fact that there's tension inside the car. Like there's contradiction inside the car and they don't like, they don't like each other at some, at some point. And yeah, that they think that the bi person is like gross or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, when I was talking about like the power to sway, I wasn't so much talking about like convincing people to like vote for a certain party or whatever. I mean, you can have like fucking Amy Poehler and Mayor Rudolph like together with, who was it like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris? And I mean, that's maybe they'll crack a couple of jokes here and there, but that's not really going to sway anybody to me. What the political sort of potential of, of stand up comedy is, is a sort of like a comfort with cynicism, especially now that I think there's this overly positive, like corporate sort of, I don't know, like, like tendency to want to turn everything into like, into a safe space and everything needs to be like happy and everybody needs to get along. Uh, stand up comedy to me, like the political, social political, uh, sway that it has is it's to cultivate. Yeah. Like cynicism, a little bit of nihilism here and there. And I think that, yeah, maybe it's, it's, that's where its value is for me. Um, but I see it, I see it, I see that, I see myself getting that from other places other than stand-up comedy. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it, I, I think in some ways you can, you can have the same discussion about, like, uh, it, like, literary novels, right? You know, what are the, what are the things that we get out of, you know, uh, of reading literary novels? Uh, can you get many of those same things from other art forms? And, and I'm, I'm sure the answer is yes, right? Like that, um, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, I, I don't particularly, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of the forum, but I mean, I, I don't particularly think that somebody who never listens to stand-up comedy is living a deprived life, you know, and, and, and they're, you know, and, and they're missing depths and, you know, and, and, and riches that, you know, that they have no other way of, of getting into their life. You know, I, I think that it's... Uh, I think that it's it's one particular way of being entertained in a way that at its best is insightful and thought provoking, 
Uh, but it's certainly, you know, it's it certainly isn't is it the other way as as you said before. You know, there are other there are other forms of comedy even you know that that, that have emerged that uh, you know that lots and lots of people are getting many of those same those same things from. Um, but I, I guess what I'm, you know, I, I think that I think my quarrel isn't particularly with the person who says, eh, you know, it's, it's not my thing, right? You know, as as with the person who somehow it is their thing, right? Like yeah. they're they're yeah, even. Yeah. Um, they're they're even doing things like writing reviews of a special for uh, for for Slate or you know mm-hmm. Jezebel or whatever, and they'll and they'll do these these bizarre things like um, when when Dave Chappelle says uh, I'm a victim blamer. When I heard about Michael Jackson, my first thought was what were those kids wearing? <laughs> like that somehow somehow they'll they'll not only think but but say write down and their mm-hmm. editors will approve them saying. That oh he was like you know trying to be edgy by you know by taking a shot at you know Michael Jackson's victims. Like... Absolutely, I, there's a couple of things actually talking about you know. No, I, I just you know the, this whole thing of um, you know something that originally has a certain intention and becomes capitalized upon and transformed into something else. I always find this like reading intentions of people. Adrian and I are really into psychoanalytic theory and psychoanalysis in general. And it's funny how like this weaponized, capitalized upon form of kind of therapy in the so-called subconscious. I mean, Jordan Peterson being an example, I think he misuses terms. He calls himself a psychoanalyst, but like, or in, I, he, I've heard him use that one once, and it's like, well, that literally not at all. <laughs> but the, um, but the, you know, you're, he's like a a, de- a theory of depth psychology, let's just say. But there's kind of like certain ideas, like you know, the the discovery of Freud of the unconscious and how it's become this kind of in a lot of kind of common parlance, this facile reading of you can interpret exactly what somebody's thinking because they say something. If they say something, and again, this essentializing, you know, and in psychoanalysis, like if you go through psychoanalytic therapy, you know, it takes years and years and years precisely because any signifier can literally mean any signified for any person. It can be like one thing that happened to one person as a child, a swan might represent this and it might represent, you know, something else for somebody else. And, you know, it can literally, it takes years and years and years and years to unpack we're also like self-alienated subjects. We don't even know what the fuck we even think. So it's kind of like reading into things of like, oh, he said this, therefore his unconscious or his unconscious system of this is this or his belief is that. But I, I really think there's a few examples or uh, in this special where Dave Chappelle is really right on about like how capitalism works. The first one is the example that you said at the beginning of um, the Anthony Bourdain versus his very pathetic friend who was a scholar at Harvard and then became like a, a shop assistant at Foot Locker. And Anthony Bourdain had all of the, the trappings of capitalism, the sleeping with hot women, the most amazing job of going around the world, eating food, being a total cool guy. And that cannot, you know, that, that basically the fallacy essentially that success, fame, money, accumulation brings happiness. And there was another example that I thought was really, uh, you know, it's something that we essentially, you know, still on some level often believe. And there was another example that I thought was just really, really smart about how the way capitalism functions. And I can't remember what it is right now, but I know you mentioned it before when you gave the example. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a funny, a funny point of, um, yeah, that, that essentially we, we were in this kind of very egregious, rampant, exploitative uh, system of accumulation um, that, you know, certain moral copes, justification mechanisms that in the past might have been religion under feudalism, you know, have disappeared. And potentially there are there are other kinds of uh, justification mechanisms now of which certain moralistic ideologies. 
yeah, all, no, for, all sung. For sure. Uh, I mean, I think certainly like one thing that, that I, I didn't mention, right, but it, it's kind of along the, uh, the same lines is the uh, is the part of, of the special where where he starts talking about uh, the uh, about the op- opioid and heroin epidemic in uh, where, where yeah. it's in uh, yeah. Ohio, which which by the way my uh, <laughs> you know I my my mother grew up in Youngstown. I, I still have family members uh, who live there, and, and I I, uh, I laughed very hard about the thing you know is Ohio, which I believe is a Cherokee word for poor white people. Uh, and he starts uh, he starts to talk about uh, you know about the um, about heroin addicts and and he and the joke actually I mean again like structurally it's very similar to the to the joke about uh, Michael Jackson's victims you know is uh, is that he he now understands how uh, white people felt during the crack epidemic because he doesn't care about this either. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and yeah. so it's it's the same deal right that like he's yeah. uh that you know because i mean i mean again if you're gonna do the sort of like 19 you know 82 romanian censor level like literalness uh that you that some people did with the, the michael jackson joke i guess they go oh my god that's terrible right he doesn't care about them but uh uh but it it seems like you know at the very least what he's playing with and milk and humor from is this thing about uh about like communalist identifications mm-hmm. you know making people you know indifferent to to like the ravages of, of poverty and social decay yeah um so yeah for sure i just realized the other example was about the kids and michael jackson yes, because he right. talks about it in capitalist terms you know he kind of says you know at least you got you know I mean, obviously it's a very edgy joke oh but, yeah yeah lots of lots you know. of you know if lots of people i'm sure some people in this audience were molested but i wasn't by no michael jackson, michael jackson. Yeah. and so, yeah, yeah the, the idea that it, i mean that's essentially yeah how a lot of this abuse happens is because yeah. of the economic systems that we that we live in and um, yeah, I just thought that was, it was a very clever joke. I love the, I love the, like, I'm not a pedophile, but if I was, Michael Culkin would be the first kid I fuck. No, I, um, <laughs> I was going to say, um, Ben, what do you, th- I mean, we were just talking about this before you logged on and what is the actual power or authority of, uh, woke people online? And, um, I mean, of course it's undeniable. Some people have been greatly affected by sort of like this cancel culture. But do you think that maybe there's a, you were mentioning Chomsky um, and he wrote a book in the eighties on manufacturing consent. And there's a, sometimes I think that the discourse or what gets introduced into the symbolic order, like Helen was talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's almost not like it's introducing a signifier into the symbolic order, but a master signifier in the sense that people just assume that it's sort of like the, the leading idea in the symbolic order. And this would be the second joke that you were talking about of uh, Chappelle saying that um, I'm going to do an impression of someone and then actually somebody some, somebody else like, oh, it's Trump. Uh, but he's like, no, that's you guys. It's the audience. And it's uh, do you think that people are actually really like that? Um, do, do you think that people actually get like offended that easily? Or are most people just like, no, it's funny and I don't care. And uh, does he sort of like miss the mark? And is he adding to that sort of like manufacturing of a mas- master signifier in which like, y- you know, you start to believe actually that people are very sensitive like that instead of just a few people on Twitter that, you know, are just like, they're, they're basically just like, you know, calling out people 
uh, not because they're leftists, but because that that's the kind of people that they are. Yeah. So I guess maybe to start at the very end there, I think that I think that the it's not just because they it's not primarily because their leftist part is absolutely right. I think that uh, what we now tend to call cancel culture, and you know, I usually use that term because I generally prefer to like use whatever term is generally used and fight about the underlying ideas rather than fight about the words. But, uh, uh, but it's, it's, I think one of the, I guess to go back to something you said earlier, one of the things that's a little, that's slightly annoying about it is that uh, because that's the term that's generally used now, it kind of leads to all these questions about, okay, but are people really canceled? What does it even mean to be canceled? It's really charged already. already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so I kind of like, I remember back in like 2015, the phrase was call out culture, which, you know, seems kind of anachronistic now, but like, I think was a more accurate term for the same phenomenon. Uh, because even though um, lots of people do suffer, you know, financial harm, certainly uh, as a result of, of, of this stuff, and there are even cases of people who commit suicide as, as a result of it, um, for the most part, Right? I think that's not. I, I think that's not the biggest part of what we're talking about. I think that. I think that what's what's roughly called cancel culture, um, is a tendency that that I tend to think is uh, is not just on the left. I, I think it's a disease of you know, whatever you want to say, neoliberalism, or mm -hmm. what we could maybe optimistically call late capitalism, uh, that uh, that infects uh, the entire political spectrum. Uh, which um, which comes from the fact that we live in this neoliberal hellscape where people are incredibly atomized and they often feel most connected to other people online. Uh, and uh, also the fact that um, the, the, the technology itself, like social media platforms, uh, are intentionally designed. You know, this is, this is not exactly a state secret. Um, you know, I think this is part of what that new movie, the... Uh, social dilemma, you know, it's part of it, mm -hmm. what it's about, right? That uh, that these are owned by for-profit corporations and they're designed to be as addictive as at all possible. That's that's the goal. Uh, and part of how they're addictive is that they give you all these uh, instant feedback mechanisms uh, like, you know, likes and retweets and all that stuff uh, that, uh, that give people instant validation uh, for doing things to achieve clout within a certain group or, or especially to help define the boundaries of that group. Uh, and, and I think, and then I guess also a third thing is the fact that at least in the United States, which obviously cancel culture, call out culture, whatever you want to call it is, is very far from being limited to the United States, but this is certainly the epicenter of it. Uh, most people uh, work in non-unionized uh, at-will employment workplaces uh, so that gives an extra charge or you know, edge to a lot of this stuff uh, because a lot of people are very worried about being fired uh, for things taken out of context, et cetera, because they can be fired without any sort of process or appeal. Uh, and so all of those factors, I think, again, I think it infects the entire political spectrum. I think like if you read uh, John Ronson's book, uh, So You've Been Publicly mm -hmm. Shamed, which came out in 2000. 2015? Yes, 2015. Uh, so uh, it's uh, certainly before the, the phrase cancel culture was invented, but it's very much about that. And, uh, and in there, like one of his main examples uh, is actually from the right. It's about uh, Lindsey Stone 
uh, who uh, who worked for um, an organization called Life, working with adults with learning disabilities. Uh, and she and her friend and coworker Jamie, while they're on their off hours, uh, they would often like take kind of jokey and irreverent pictures of each other and post them on Facebook like things like smoke in front of a non-smoking sign, things like that. And one of them uh, was uh, there at the uh, there are Arlington National Cemetery and uh, Jamie takes a picture of Lindsay going like, pretending like she's shouting in front of a sign that says silence and respect. Uh, and she thought that, of course, she was posting this to her, you know, at the, you know, however many, a hundred people or whatever she was friends with on Facebook. Uh, but somehow the picture got out and there was, and there were all the same things you see in pylons by progressives that there were, there were like, there was a, uh, fire Lindsay stone Facebook group with 20,000 likes and, and she was fired and her life was impacted in various other ways, uh, which just goes to the point that it's not unique to the left. I think that when combined with the more specific pathologies, of the left, I think mm -hmm. it can add up to something that's really toxic, that really alienates a lot of potentially persuadable people, but uh, it's not at all unique to the left. And as far as like how much power it really has, I think it really depends what you mean. I think that, I think that oftentimes, um, like sometimes the stuff, like oftentimes the stuff does succeed in getting people in certain kinds of jobs fired. Uh, oftentimes, because I think we saw a lot of this uh, in the post George Floyd moment in the United States that. Um, if you're trying to get corporations or political institutions, you know, to change anything meaningful about their practices, that's incredibly hard. Uh, but uh, if you just want to get somebody fired from one of those organizations, that's incredibly easy. Uh, and so it's it's a it's a really easy concession that they can give you. Oh, you know, we'll, we'll fire this person uh, who said something problematic. Absolutely. So so it happens a fair amount, right? But but that said, I do agree that most times people do things like this. And I take Adrian's point, right? I don't think that like most people are necessarily like Chappelle's impression of his audience. The problem is I think that there are, even if it's a minority, there are enough people uh, who are like that to create a lot of these effects. And I think that the, I think that there's a, um, there's an effect. Uh, I think that there, there are psychological effects. I think sometimes there are financial effects, but that said, I also think that most that like, I totally take Adrian's point, 95% of the time, you know, uh, when people are, are sort of mob yelling at someone on Twitter, it's just yelling into the void. It doesn't have any real material effects uh, on the world, uh, which, although I think in those cases, the most dangerous thing about it is that it feels like it does. Yeah. So it yeah. scratches the itch to capital D, capital S, do something. Yeah, it's yeah. very, it's very no, difficult it, for something yeah. like that to sort of materialize into rabble. But ideologically or conceptually, I think it's very easy and people can just assume that there's millions of people out there that are just like woke, you know, but yeah. But what I think you, it's, yeah. it's conducive for us to imagine that there are, like, I think yeah. it is, um, you know, that as you say, like the punishment is, is acted on a particularist level and we're so granularized in this like neoliberal world and even more so through our iPhones and, you know, it, this dividing, I mean, I'm not like a traditionalist in any sense, but like breaking up families, breaking up kind of wider community institutions, like we can, it's conducive for us to feel as if everyone out there is against us. Because, you know, capitalism wants us to be, it, it, it thrives off particularization and granularization. No, I, th I think that's, I think that's right. And, and like, oftentimes, um, sure, if there are 100 people who are yelling at you all at once, 
even though you might step back or or when you're thinking back to it later, realize, okay, but that's out of like 20,000 people mm -hmm. who saw this, there are like a hundred who are furious about it. You know, that's, that's, that's nothing, right? You know, if, if I, mm -hmm. if I run into somebody who saw the thing they're mad about, most likely they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess if I'm Dave Chappelle in this scenario, Dave, I loved your special, right? You know, but like, uh, uh, but that said, I also think that um, that sometimes we we are a little too prone to just dismiss. Uh, it's like, oh, whatever, right? You know, so some people got mad. I'll, you know, so, you know, log off, go for a run, whatever. Uh, which one is is sort of weirdly inconsistent because I don't think we would do that in other contexts, right? If 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 like a hundred people are like piling racist abuse onto someone online, right? Like nobody on the left would or should say, oh, why are you taking this so seriously? It's just online, get over it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then like also more importantly, I think that, um, I think there's also something that, you know, it's very easy to give advice like that. It's very hard to take it. I, I don't think we're really built uh, to, to have a hundred people yell at us at yeah, the same time absolutely. and not have some kind of psychological effect, mm -hmm. especially I, if, as yeah. you say, we're living in this, incredibly atomized neoliberal hellscape absolutely we, you know we're used in in real world conditions you know to have a community of x number of people so 100 people is a lot of people for one person you know even if it's 100 out of a million people who viewed it 100 people is a lot um but the the other thing i was going to say is that you know there's a lot of cancellation that happens that's totally invisible for example you know somebody who voices a desire to unionize you know is it happen it's happening at like non-online levels but i also think this you know and this comes to the question of the commons and how tech really fits within capitalism and you know how we've had this new industrial revolution that has had terrible terrible effects that we haven't really thought about and yes okay these are private companies of course they're private companies so they have the right to you know people can be deplatformed it's within their rights but you know, these are monopolies that have taken over and they feel like reality itself, you know, online, the online world, YouTube, Instagram can feel like the only reality that there is because it has taken on such massive import in our lives. And there's very few media through which we can express ourselves, you know, so um, I think we are very fragile in the face of cancellation. Yeah, absolutely. And in that sense of that kind of corporate cancellation, like deplatforming, I also think uh, that that uh, that there's a weird thing that happens where where a lot of leftists when they start talking about this suddenly they sound like libertarians. Yeah, uh, they'll say you know they'll say oh you know free speech is only about the government right you know it's like they you know private company you know can can do what it wants which is a yeah. uh, uh, which which again like sounds exactly like a. Um, you know, like a, a, a libertarian explaining why, you know, the restaurant owner shouldn't have to, you yeah. know, have the notice on, on his wall, you know, informing employees about, you know, OSHA safety standards or, you know, uh, or, or, or anything, anything like that, right? Like that <laughs> in practice, of course, I mean, uh, I mean, I think, I don't think YouTube, for example, necessarily should be, you know, a free for all where you can literally post anything, but, uh, mm -hmm. but these, these corporations uh, do control a, a really absurd amount of the flow of information. And so if you are concerned uh, about, about free speech, not just, not just as a legal matter, but like, you know, but you're, you're concerned with, with the, the, the free exchange, you know, of information, uh, then I think that when you see 
uh, very few decision makers empowered to make decisions about what millions of people will or will not see, mm -hmm. oftentimes with extremely fuzzily defined rules that and no real process for like, okay, exactly why did this get taken down? Can I appeal it? You know, then uh, then I think that it's 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 legitimate to uh, to find that disturbing. And I think it's interesting you point out about that libertarian question, because I think, yeah, there are, first of all, I think there's a lot of fuzziness in terms of what the terms mean. But I guess the difference between a libertarian and a leftist would be like, and it's not okay, or, you know, or let's look at the reasons how this has happened, or let's try to work to change it. Um, but, you know, for sure, there's a lot of um, people calling themselves leftists, which I kind of do use this principle of contradiction versus opposition and then when you kind of read it in a certain or you know maybe a more marxist lens it's like hang on this is to you're on totally on the side of capital you know so it's really hard to come and even you know obviously in the most facile way the liberal you know liberal left and everything and the democrats versus the republicans you know it's, it's sort of kind of even disheartening to even be able to like begin to express a critique of this very muddled system we live in yeah, for for sure. I mean, and I think that oftentimes people will, like, if so much of your engagement with politics is about um, trying to see bad people punished, uh, because, mm -hmm. um, which I think is something that happens for all the reasons we've already talked about. That you know, again, it's it's such a it's it. That's what feels like a realistic victory that you could have, right? You know, that uh, like to the point that I remember, like when Rush Limbaugh got his cancer diagnosis. You know, I saw some people, you know, celebrating on left Twitter in this way that would make you think that, like, I don't know, uh, Clear Channel had taken away Rush Limbaugh's show and was going to, like, reassign it to Sam Cedar or something, uh, which which would actually be some sort of left victory. It's like, no, this is just, like, life that, you know, that, yeah, people <laughs> get old and they get sick and they die yeah. and then yeah. they're replaced with, like, fresh new conservative blowhards. You know, that's that's not any kind of, like, progress <laughs> yeah. or victory. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, but, like, when you just really want to see the, the, uh, the bad people punished, or even if you can't punish them, you at least want everybody to performatively agree with you about how bad they are, then mm -hmm. oftentimes people will just reach for whatever justifies that in the moment, even if it doesn't really fit with what they would normally think ideologically right so just as we're recording mm -hmm. this today on friday right something i just saw in um you know in michigan where i'm where i'm from right there were just these 13 militia people who were arrested for plotting to kidnap the governor and um uh, and walter bragman i think uh posted something where he like showed a picture of the like ramshackle like house where one of them lived and he said something about like economic factors playing a role and you know causing terrorism uh, and uh, whatever you think about like the that on its merits, one of the strangest reactions I saw was progressives, uh, people who presumably they have no problem in other contexts saying like, yeah, sure, like uh, like if you want to reduce crime, you have to reduce poverty, things like that. They're saying, oh, so you're saying that like you know poor people are bad and they become terrorists, you know, like that's uh, you know that's that's a terrible thing for you to say. Uh, mm -hmm. Which which would sound in nothing so much like, you know, uh, Reagan Republicans dismissing any analysis of crime that had to do with poverty or structural racism, but it's convenient in the moment because what you want you know you don't actually want to stop and think about this. What you want to do uh, is to to get everybody to agree with you about how bad the bad people are. Absolutely, yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with the class reductionism thing. You know, that kind of like broad brush dismissal of something because it 
I don't, I mean, I haven't really got to the bottom as to why I think that that faux phenomenon is like a kind of a talking point. Much. But I mean, a part of me kind of thinks that, you know, we're so disorientated right now. Like so many changes are happening so rapidly. The um, economy is obviously getting more and more and more unfair. You know, there's different forms of exploitation that are really well hidden under snazzy text, snazzy marketing, you know, this even this idea of progressive you know i kind of find very odd it's like we're marching towards some like perfect utopia where nobody's bad but like you know of course we have a system that has not really changed but has changed in uh you know sort of form but not really in function you know and um i think that there is certainly you know our, our generation with young millennials i guess you know burdened with huge amounts of debt because certain issues that were already apparent about not there not being enough jobs were papered over by the financialization of young people's education. And so, you know, it's just getting worse and worse and worse and more and more and more ridiculous, you know, ideological copes to justify it. And I think people are very sort of confused. And even, you know, when we, we aren't able to stop and think or even have the tools to really see what the kind of chains are within our contemporary condition, it's almost like often when we find a tool people want to remove that tool or that tool's too challenging or what if something worse takes its place? I, I think there's just a lot of, you know, a huge amount of insecurity on various kind of, you know, psychological material levels. And um, obviously the pandemic's just kind of made it worse. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, do you think that there's there can be a sort of rehabilitation uh, of rat shaming <laughs> because uh well helen right now was talking about like the difference between like liberals and leftists and leftists are just kind of like more looking out for workers looking out for each other if they're working you know uh and liberals are just like you know we want to scold the earth into shape and i was kind of brought up like don't rat on people you just that's not something that you do there's different ways that you can deal with it but don't like that's not the way to treat like your fellow fellow men uh, especially to like you know structures that that could really could potentially like ruin you know like the person. So yeah, I think that is there enough like rat shaming and would it even have any traction right now? Uh yeah. I mean, I think it's worth a shot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if if uh, you know people are being shamed for anything else, it's at least useful to shame them for this. Uh, yeah, but no, I mean, in all, in all seriousness, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a really disturbing sign of part of the problem we were talking about earlier, which is that uh, the, you know, the, the contemporary uh, left, and sometimes when I make these, these criticisms, people, people will say, like a certain kind of like smart leftist will push back and say, oh, but you're not really talking about the left. You're talking about like liberals. But then my contention would be that there isn't really a sharp dividing line in practice, which is part of the problem. Uh, but um, but that the the left uh, is more disconnected from any kind of organized working class than it's ever been in history, uh, and I think what you're talking about, Adrian, really gets to the heart of that, because certainly if you think about like um, what you know, if you were in a structure like a union, um, the last thing you would ever do is try to get somebody fired. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. like like uh, like even if they were saying horrible racist shit, and maybe you'd like beat them up in the parking lot or something, but you certainly wouldn't go to the boss and try to get them fired because that would really just undermine the whole enterprise. Uh, whereas uh, I think because 
so much of of left wing political energy now has is channeled into um, online interactions between uh, fairly atomized individuals, uh, then it it sort of becomes natural that you know there's there's no idea of of something like a union or a grassroots social mm-hmm. movement as a, a countervailing source of power. Uh, so the the instinct is often just to uh, to try to to wrap people out to to whatever you know whatever form of authority you know like seems like it actually is exercising some power whether mm-hmm. that's an employer or YouTube you know Twitter or whatever you know because um, you know because that's what feels like getting something done even if what's getting done uh, isn't actually uh, anything that's going to do anything to help with the the structural problem. Uh, all it's going to do is is make a um, uh, is is have some like random person who did something bad have have more trouble you know paying for his health insurance premiums uh, and in the process by the way probably like radicalizing him into some sort of hardcore conservative because uh, because people like you did this to him. Absolutely, yeah. I know, and this is the thing: the fallacy that like these uh, authorities you know, in a materialist sense, they're not, they're not on your side, you know, <laughs> the, the person that's on the side is the person that's being ratted out. But it's funny because, um, you know, we talked about like granularization and like particularization. And obviously there's, there's an element of, you know, something more universal or, you know, a, a working class led movement or, you know, people seeing things that they have in common. I think a lot of, um, especially with tech and there being fewer jobs, a lot of people potentially for, of different, from different strata of society have more in common, um, at this moment and in different moments in time, you know, with, with people from other strata. But, you know, there's obviously this kind of twee idea of like universalism, Benetton, everybody who've got more in common than what we do. But what kind of what we talk about is the more kind of like dialectical version of materialism, which is like a negative, uh, sorry, a negative universalism. It's like what we share is what we don't share. And I think this is what like comedy can really bring out, like what we share. And I think Zizek talks about this a lot, that like when you're really close with somebody is when you can really take the piss out of them because you're pointing out that you know you see within them something they don't have some kind of gap within them the comedic gap essentially and like we what we have in in common as human beings is this you know the form of subjectivity that we all share which i think comes from a from essential lack you know what what is difficult in life and you know it's i think that's a profoundly anti-capitalistic thing because can you capitalize on nothing well no you know (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like, so I, I think actually we haven't talked about, but, but this good, good lead in to probably the thing that, uh, most of the hate, the special got, uh, uh, wasn't even for any of the, the things that we've talked about. Uh, mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was for the, uh, the transracialism joke, uh, that, um, you know, where, where he's saying, oh, you know, having, you know, born, you know, in, in a certain sex growing up in that, that gender identity and, and then, have a different one is innately funny, uh, which, 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 uh, which, which, by the way, if you, if you watch like the, uh, the, the trans uh, YouTuber ContraPoints, I remember she has a, um, uh, she has a uh, video called, called the darkness where she says exactly the same thing, right? You know, that this mm-hmm. is, this is an innately funny situation. Uh, and, um, you know, just, just because again, there's, there's that, there's that tension, right? You know, and, and then, and then what he says, I think was sort of taken as, uh, somewhat understandably, I think, because a lot of people have heard this variations of this so many times <laughs> that they sort of read it into whatever they hear. But it was, it was taken as a kind of like um, you know attack helicopter joke, right? You know that uh, yeah. uh, which, 
I don't actually think was at all the point, right? You know, because because when he he compares, uh, he he compare like he compares that to uh, to him, you know, him saying that he uh, he was going to be a uh, identify as an Asian person, and and then he he does uh, with reference to his wife, you know, this 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 sort of like schlocky caricature, you know, of of, of an Asian person. Uh, and and I don't think that was really the point. I think the point uh, has more to do with something actually we've seen a lot. Uh, for some reason, we've seen like several cases of like just in the last couple months, uh, which uh, which is um, what the phenomenon of like uh, of like racial dolezal, Jess LaBamera, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Jessica Krug uh, uh, type cases of of people who. Um, well, the way it would usually be thought of, right, is that they're is that they're really white, you know, but they're but they're pretending, you know, or they've spent their lives pretending uh, to uh, to be black. And it seems like what the joke is really playing up. I mean, I think first of all, I mean, this kind of goes back to like a stand-up comedy special is not an essay, right? There's no thesis you're arguing for, uh, you know. But but he's but the the tension he's exploring is between how we think about those cases and and how we think about gender. Uh, and of course, one, if you were going to come to a conclusion, one conclusion you, you could come to is a socially conservative one that, oh, it, it would be clearly absurd to, to be transracial. Therefore, nobody's really transgender. Uh, but I don't think that's, I, I don't think, certainly, I don't think that's the only conclusion you could come to on the basis of noticing that uncomfortable tension and the views that a lot of us have about those, these things, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, you could, you could resolve that tension in tons of different directions. Uh, and, and certainly I, I think at its best, one thing that that could get us to, to think more about is why we're in the business of, um, as people with any kind of, you know, left political perspective, um, you know, one thing, you know, presumably that, that we, that we should all agree on is that you know race uh you know racial categorizations don't track some like magical essential feature of human beings uh and so you know so we could look at this and say okay well if sure there are all kinds of differences between these cases but um but there's something really funny there's something that like maybe we want to think twice about about the, the the instinctive reaction that a lot of people have to the the Rachel Dole's all sorts of cases of like outrage at like mm-hmm. misreporting one's racial category, uh, you know, and and think well no maybe um, you know like maybe this is you know of course it's not the same thing insofar as you know all human societies that have ever existed people have sorted themselves in some way that that roughly corresponds to sex. Uh, and and you know probably will continue you know to to do so, whereas you know race is a very recent you know historical innovation, mm-hmm. um, you know and and so it might be more plausible to think that that will at some point in the future, uh, you know actually you know uh, make make reality the sort of dumb right wing thing about claiming not to see color you know that uh, you know that that we, we that we will at some point in the future cease to categorize ourselves this way. Mm-hmm. But whatever's true about that, right? I, I think the larger issue is this is a real tension that he's locking onto, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is like this is this is a real place 
where a lot of people with, you know, to use the word that you said earlier for reasons I sympathize with that you don't like, right? You know, progressive, you know, views about these things. Uh, a lot of people with those progressive views do are kind of pulled in a couple of different directions on these cases. And whatever your conclusion about how we actually should think about them, surely it shouldn't be off limits to, in the context of a comedy special, try to try to milk humor from the tension and the discomfort. Absolutely, and but the thing is, you know, you're talking about like the the, the tension is very productive, and it is interesting because often, you know, that tension being papered over, papered over in, in various ways, and you hear this kind of you know someone's identity is not up for debate, etc. Which you know, absolutely. Um, but the the idea is that you know that things like drag have always played with the tension, you know, of this kind of like well, we have this arbitrary biological sex difference, but obviously it doesn't track neatly. And so, but yeah, I mean, there are like productive ways of, of kind of sending things up. Um, the, I have to say, I don't know about you, Adrian, I found the bit that I found most funny in the special was the Jussie Smollett bit. I, I don't really know. I, I don't know if it's to his delivery and he's saying the French actor Jussie Smollett. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, that's something kind of the, the, what we're just talking about kind of, I think maybe, you know, similar themes at play. Um, but that was, it was, you know, it was quite funny. You know, he's talking about the Nigerian race, the people playing the character of the racist being Nigerian. And he does a kind of a Nigerian accent, you know, with various like racial slurs. Um, no, I thought that was a, a very funny bit. I don't know if you have any insights about that joke in particular. Oh, well, me? Sorry, did you say me? Well, either, either of you guys. Oh. I was just saying either of you guys, yeah. Uh, no, about that. I don't... Yeah, I don't... Oh, man. I watched the special yesterday, but I think I cut off right before getting to that part. But I remember it yes, from... towards the end, yeah. That, well, yeah, he was kind of saying, like, I'm not going to call you that, you know, if that's if you were faking the whole thing. It's just, like, the last thing you can tell me is just that I need to call you Juicy Smoley or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, the funniest part about it was, was that I thought right, the way he said it sets it up, right, you know, because it's, 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 again, he's, he's playing with these, um, with this, like, the same way with the alphabet people joke, right, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's about the way that, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of like, sending up that phrase LGBTQ, right, you know, that like, which is, which again, I think, is inherently funny right you know that this this mm -hmm. sort of like having like the the um that sort of style of politics right having this increasingly long abbreviation you know to to cover all bases that is funny right you know like mm -hmm. like you like you can sympathize with support all of these civil rights struggles and, and and still find that funny and similarly uh he's uh the same way that he's talking about ways that people who are incorporated in, in that increasingly clunky label right you know might uh might have you know points of tension within the coalition. Uh, he's he's doing the same kind of thing there, right? Because he says, "Oh, when this uh, gay black uh, uh, actor was allegedly attacked, uh, they uh, then you know a lot of people in the gay community were saying, you know, the black community is you know what? Why aren't you being supportive of this? You're being silent. It's like we are being supportive by not saying anything, you know, yeah, yeah. that like everybody could tell that this was just obviously nonsense. That like." 
walking around this like super liberal neighborhood of Chicago. There are these guys in MAGA hats who just happen to be carrying around ropes uh, and kerosene, you know, getting ready to, you know, oh, and they all watch Empire, so they recognize them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was very funny, actually. Yeah, like the kind of people who'd watch Empire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I wanted to... I wanted to ask you uh, something, Ben. Is that if if there's something that we can count on is is people's sort of dissatisfaction, uh, and that's why sort of like utopia is is for for babies, you know. <laughs> Believing in a utopia is just ridiculous because yeah, people because of unconscious sort of like desire or like the enigmatic nature of sexuality, uh, satisfaction is basically the last thing that people want, and. Um, there's this there's a sort of like unification of like people that are i you know in on the side of identity politics and uh and capitalism like i I just saw a few tweets today like jp morgan chase says it will extend billions in loans to black and latino home buyers and small businesses owners uh in an attempt to like break down systems of like racial oppression or, or economic inequality and then like yelp said that uh they were going to start like paying more attention to reports of racist conduct and it was going to start doing like a like like giving a mark or a label to businesses that have been accused of like racist behavior um when when you have like when you have like this this unification of like who the fuck likes banks right uh and and who likes like like review sites this much that you know they're gonna be allies like perpetually i think i don't know i i my hunch is that people are just gonna get sick of it and uh they're gonna like abandon this whole thing of like uh identity politics but maybe that's too optimistic what do you, what do you think is gonna happen uh yeah i mean i i think um I mean, I think what what you said about utopia is 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 really true and important. Um, I think, I think as far as like how how it plays out specifically with uh, with identity politics, uh, maybe I'd be less optimistic, if only because I think that it's so obvious. to like, I mean, in a weird way, I think that this this kind of like essentialist identitarianism. It's like, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like, like thinking about what causes that and how it could be, how it could go away is like almost a little bit like thinking about like what causes people to vote for Trump and how that could go away. Right. You know, that like that in both cases, not that they're all the same problems necessarily. Right. But like people very correctly see that something is very wrong. Right. You know, with, with, with the world they're living in uh, and they, they interpret it in, in this frame and, I guess I have a hard time seeing people um, rejecting the frame until they get a better one, right? That, yeah. like, so, so for example, right? It's it's not, you know, I mean, it's it's not wrong to to think uh, think that you you live in in a society that 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 you know really profoundly doesn't care about you and 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 that you you have a long list of very legitimate complaints and if you um, I mean, if you don't have some kind of analysis of, well, you know, if you don't have a class analysis of that, then you're, mm -hmm. you're going to reach for some other kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this, this sort of, um, so, so for example, right. I mean, if, if, if people 
I mean, I, I guess I just think like if, if people have, you know, like if um, things like, you know, brutal militarized policing of poor neighborhoods that for historical reasons are disproportionately minority, right? If that's not mm-hmm. going away anytime soon, right? Then I think that, that, that people who are justly outraged by those things are going to either come up with a better analysis of what the problem is, or they're going to continue to to view it in this kind of kind of liberal essentialist, you know, lens that the uh, that um, that the the problem is, um, you know, where where you have this analysis of of what's going on there and what can be done about it. That's that's all about sort of seeing black people as like a single unit. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like I always loved uh, Toure Reed's point about how there are more black people in the United States. There are Canadians in Canada. Somehow, we would never think there was like a Canadian perspective mm-hmm. on anything because we understand it's a complex society divided into different economic interests and different ideologies and all of those things. Uh, but uh, but but so many you know uh, liberals and even leftists can't make the same leap. You know, in in the other case, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that case, right, and I mean, like, I, I guess I'm honing in on the case where I think that's it's the most legitimate, but like you have a, but uh, uh, because of, of how profoundly disturbing the problem that's being reacted to is, but, you know, but in that case, uh, for example, if people are going, if it's going to continue to happen and people are going to continue to be outraged about it, uh, and you don't have some sort of like class analysis of what the underlying problem is, then you are going to continue to see it in these sort of race race essentialist terms where you know this is where you know the problem is about you know black people as a unit and 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 the role of poor white people is is to be uh what's called an ally and you know and 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 how uh you know which you can have very militant versions of it but then like a lot of mainstream versions that are largely about having difficult conversations yeah, uh, yeah. as uh as tedious you know as, sorry my nephew on the phone there sorry about that <laughs> I was wondering, yeah, I heard that. Uh, yeah, so so anyway, like all of which is just to say, and then like you could tell equivalent stories about all kinds of other social problems, right? That like, I, I think that if you, um, you know, that, that unless there's like a mass outbreak of people having Marxist explanations, these things are going to continue to have liberal explanations of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so yeah. I'm, 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 I'm pretty pessimistic about that, unfortunately. Yeah, there's like, there's a nice... Uh, this nicely ties back to what you were talking about in the beginning, which I think uh, I've read uh, Zizek as well making this point that there's a deficit in material power that people have. And basically what they're doing is just like supplementing or negotiating with this lack of uh, this lack of uh, influence uh, with things that they can do. And yeah, ironically, I think that cancel culture is a materialist movement. It might start in a place that is not material, but the ultimate goal is to have like material consequences affecting the people that they want to cancel. Um, But sorry, Helen, were you going to say something? I was going to say that, of course, like the, the the fewer people seeing the you know seeing these uh, things from a marxist sense the more beneficial to capital which is potentially why capitalists obviously corporations have sided with identity politics so you know we that's it's like a massive tide against which one has to swim yeah yeah for sure or i think like a lot of a lot of that is is also just that it's very um it's it's just kind of the path of least resistance right you know like Mm -hmm. like you like they're um like if you're if you want to do something to signal uh to signal to the people who are mad at you that they've won some sort of victory well the easiest possible way to do that 
is to, you know, stick a sign that says Black Lives Matter, you know, in the corner yeah. of the screen, because uh, that way you don't have to do anything that might actually mean that you'll start to lose money. Uh, yeah. And, um, and, and yeah, and I, and I guess I also did want to go back to, uh, to, to Adrian's point about, about utopia, because uh, I, I, I think it's an important one. It's one I think about a lot, right, that, uh, that I think that, that even within, you know, some versions of, of the Marxist tradition, there's a, uh, there's, there's a tendency to have this kind of, like, you know, millenarian way of, of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of thinking about this stuff. Like, like, almost, like I don't know, I remember, um, uh, like, not somebody I'm even necessarily a huge fan of, but I remember, the, I remember in the essay finding this really striking, right? There's an old essay by uh, Richard Rorty where he says that, uh, as like a young, uh, as as like a young kid involved in this like uh, very socialist milieu in, in like World War II era New York, uh, he remembers like wondering about like whether like the other kids that bully him would like uh, would we would somehow wither away after the revolution, uh, and you know, and then there is that you know there is that tendency that I, I yeah. think is, is really uh, yeah. you know is is really misguided, right? It's like uh, it's like I remember uh, so. Freddie DeBoer just came out with this book, uh, which I mm-hmm. like a lot, called uh, "The Cult of Smart." I was yep. reading a, a very critical review of it by, uh, you know, by Nathan Robinson, uh, you know, who mm-hmm. stuff I, you know, I generally like. But in the review, he, um, you know, he objected to uh, to Freddie using this phrase, the uh, the the fundamental brokenness of life, you know, because it's like, oh, this is just like conservative pessimism about about human nature. Like, okay. I don't think so, right? Like, I think that... No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so at all. I think it's the opposite. I think, you know, do you... What, it's like, what do you do with that? But the thing is, I mean, we, I think Adrian and I really like kind of a, uh, people who are kind of rereading Hegel... Um, sorry, rereading Marx in a more Hegelian lens, you know, kind of honing in on the contradiction rather than the overcoming, because the overcoming, again, like, I mean, that's what I kind of see capitalism as, is sort of a, a form of uh, continual push towards progress through accumulation. And so, you know, it can take various forms that, you know, it doesn't have to be just to do with like money or material creation of things. But yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's like, I, just because something seems, you know, to, to foreground a fundamental difficulty of life or fundamental lack or whatever, doesn't mean that it's conservative. I mean, do you, what do you do? Do you say like, yeah, life shit, get on with it, sunshine. You say like life shit, so let's be more solidaristic, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I think that's exactly right. Like, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, look, I, I think that if we're, you know, if we're living in, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, in the 25th century, right, if, if we're, you know, if, if we're living under, you know, fully automated luxury communism, uh, you know, like, people will continue to feel a deep sense of dissatisfaction about their lives. And, you know, whether, you know, maybe it'll come in some form other than than uh, stand-up specials or uh, or podcasts like Come Town, but you know, they will also continue to enjoy whoever's producing uh, producing humor at the at the expense of that feeling. And that is funny. I mean, like existential dread is funny, and I think that's what that's what Chappelle was talking about when he was ta- when he was saying that like the trans experience <laughs> is funny, because like existentially is funny. Maybe materially is not that funny, and and living in a society yeah. that it, that is kind of transphobic, um, definitely it's going to have material consequences that are not that funny. But existentially, it is. So yeah, that's a great point. Uh, when does the when does the book come out, Ben? Uh, yeah, the uh, the gears of, of book publishing grind frustratingly slowly sometimes, so uh, so it comes out in the spring. But um, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, sorry, I was, I was just, uh, I, I, was, I, was just, I was just still thinking about the, uh, the stuff about utopia, but you're right. I think that is a very good, uh, that is a very good ending point. But yeah, I mean, thanks so much for coming on. And um, we really like really respect what Zero Books is doing. And so, you know, I think it's just really fantastic. And I know that you've been working a lot with Zero Books. So I'm really, I really want to, I said in an email with you that I find the topic of Jordan Peterson just like so incredibly fasc fascinating, what it like what represents about the great dynamics of the society that we're in at the moment. So I will be very excited to read Myth and Madness. <laughs> Not mayhem and madness, myth and myth and oh my god! Every time I get the M's the wrong way, I say myth and mayhem. But no, I'm, I'm you're turning it. You're turning into like a Foucault book. Is there anything but, though? Is, is there anything else that you want to plug, Ben? Uh, yeah. So, uh, see. So I think uh, mentioned uh, both of the books that that I've that I've uh, I've written plus. Myth and Mayhem, uh, which uh, which I just have a chapter in. Otherwise, it's it's written by uh, uh, Matt McManus, Marion Trejo, and, and Conrad Hamilton, uh, and uh, all of whom are, are worth checking out. Uh, and otherwise, I uh, guess I just uh, just shamelessly plug the uh, the podcast, uh, which is uh, which is called Give Them an Argument, uh, and. Um, uh, I, I guess I will say the books. The book's not coming out in uh, until the spring, but there's a article that uh, that I wrote for Jacobin a few weeks ago, uh, which, in some ways, is a preview of, or at least like compliments, you know, some of what I say in it, which is a review essay about that John Ronson book we were talking about earlier. So you're being publicly shamed. So it's kind of like a five years later, what's changed? How does this hold up? Things called so you're still being publicly shamed. <laughs> Awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll be sure. We'll be sure to remind people when the book comes out to to go and get it. Well, thanks so much for Absolutely. for being with us, Ben. All right. Thanks. Guys. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking. Thanks so much, and thanks for listening. All right. Bye. <laughs>